0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. What's your favorite Aerosmith song? Mm-hmm. Don't Stop Believing. <laughs> I'm Brian Noe, he's Jimmy Cook. Here on the fan. Good Lord, Jimmy. Man, oh man. I'll tell you what. I misspeak from time to time, but it doesn't always get turned into a rejoin. You know what I mean? No. Yeah.
1: Look, in in a way, I feel like I finally made it in infamy. Am I happy about it? No. But uh, (laughs) hey, you could pick worse ways to be a part of a rejoiner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's absolutely true we want to welcome in JJ Stakevitz writer at Colts.com joins us here on the fan JJ how big of an offense would you put it let's put a scale from one to ten ten being the worst musical offense that you could have there saying that don't stop believing is an Aerosmith song what do you think about that Ooh, I mean it's pretty uh, it's
2: pretty woven into uh, American culture but that's Journey. Ah, oh boy. Does it ah, help rough. at all if I'd put if that with, like an eight. Does it help at all yeah. within
1: two and a half seconds? I realized the error of my ways and said, "No, that's Journey."
2: Um. Yes, I guess. Like, I guess if you just had gone through your entire life thinking it was an Aerosmith song,
1: <laughs> it's not and what happened. You just found out. That's not. That's not what happened. For for the for the. For the Matter of context, and I didn't say this at the time, but I was trying to think why in the bleep did I think Don't Stop Believing" was the song by Aerosmith, and where I was looking to go with when Brian asked me, what's your favorite Aerosmith song, was Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon, but I couldn't come up with it, and in my brain, I was like, oh, it's Don't Stop Believing," and that was not what it was, so there you go.
0: Well, there you go. I you know JJ I think uh last little layer on this I think it's worse to realize your mistake in 2 seconds that just shows how bad of a mistake it was That'd be like saying hey hey who won the Super Bowl last season and I'm like oh uh, the Lions and I'm like wait no no it was uh, it was the Chiefs you know if you realize right away I think it shows it's a worse mistake no uh, Well I mean that's that's like a recent thing that would be like
2: you know saying like Uh, gosh, like what? What's another like universally accepted thing that's widely known? And you're just like that'd be like saying like, oh yeah, Chicago is in Wisconsin. Oh wait a minute, Illinois. Uh,
0: (laughs) I like where you're going with that. Yeah, it is similar to that. Okay, so how about this, JJ? We were just uh, comparing notes about the rookie quarterbacks. How many starts for each of them? If we just hone in on Anthony Richardson. What would be your guess as we sit here on June 2nd? How many starts do you think he gets in the 23 season?
2: I think just based on history, if you look at the history of top five picked quarterbacks in the last, you know, since the, uh, since the CBA changed in 2011 to put the rookie wage scale in, I think it's probably more than half the Mm game just because that has consistently been what we've seen from top five quarterbacks. The last, Top five picked quarterback to not start more than half of his team's games as a rookie would be Mahomes. Um, Sorry, Mahomes was, but he wasn't a top five pick. Excuse me. Jared Goff was the guy. He started seven games for the Rams in 2016. So, for the most part, these guys are most season or full season starters. Um, Yeah, if you expanded a little bit further out to the top 10, I think you would get Mahomes in there. Uh, you know, Josh Rosen for some other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just looking at top five pick guys, those guys usually start quite a bit early on. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm guaranteeing that Anthony Richardson is going to start the majority of the Colts games. But I think, again, if you're just looking at history for this right now, which it's way too early to tell how many games Richardson is going to start, I think you say probably more than half.
1: Well, JJ, since we're down this rabbit hole, we might as well continue it. Uh, as we look at the different tea leaves and observations from splitting of reps and who's getting the most time out there with the ones, are we really not going to get a true feel for who has the edge or who has the upper hand until we get into the meat of training camp?
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sorry uh, yeah, I mean, it, OTAs, <laughs> I, I really believe this. What you see in OTAs, is rarely predictive to what you're going to see in week one of the regular season. You can see some flashes, but for the most part, what you see in OTAs, like what we're seeing with the rookies right now, like Richardson, Downs, those guys, it's kind of what we, you know, if you watch the tape, it's kind of what you saw on tape. And you can see those guys making improvements and strides. But in terms of playing time, I don't think it's really... In- indicative. Like I've I've covered guys who have dominated OTAs and then as soon as the pads go on in training camp they kinda of wither and they fade into the background. I've covered guys who you haven't noticed them in OTAs and then all of a sudden they're not only making the roster but they're starting week one. It hmm. it can kind of work both ways because OTAs are not they're not meant for like true head to head competition between guys. They're meant to get base installs in, figure out how these guys need to be coached um, and then from there in training camp, you really start to tailor things to what those guys do best. So if Anthony Richardson fires a, a strike to Kylan Granson, you know, like he did last week and you're like, Ooh, that kind of makes you sit up in your seat a little bit. Does that mean that those two guys are going to have a great connection this year? And it's going to go, you know, for 10 touchdowns between those two guys, I, you know, maybe, but probably not. You'll probably see something different. Um, it's just it, it, these things are just so rarely predictive of what will happen in the regular season because they're not designed to be like heavy preparation for week one, right?
0: Sure, absolutely. He's JJ Stankovic of Colts.com. I, I'm just curious. I love the uh, the thought about the OTA warrior that then fizzled. Can you give us an example of a guy that comes yep. to mind? Yeah, who would it be? Yep. Yeah,
2: well, it's not anyone on the Colts. But uh, if you know the name, Adam Shaheen. Oh, yeah. He was the second-round pick of the Chicago Bears. It was the first OTAs I ever covered uh, as a, an NFL writer in Chicago. And this guy, he was six seven, two seventy five, 275, like chiseled from stone. He could run. And he lit up OTAs with the Bears in 2017. And I remember, like, being assigned a story. Hey, do some research on who the best-performing rookie tight ends have ever been. Because, boy, there's a lot of chatter like Adam Shaheen could break that. And as soon as the pads went on in training camp, you didn't hear from him, the guy. He barely played. And I just that, that one always sticks out in my mind when I think about OTAs. I'm like the, the guys who just dominate out there in shorts and helmets. And then when the pads go on and it gets really physical, it is a different game for a lot of guys.
0: How about the opposite where you would say it's an OTA dud and then he just he cranked it up. He flourished when the pads were on.
2: I mean, I even think back to just some of the the undrafted rookies we've seen have success here over the last couple of years. You know, last year, like you're watching OTAs and you're not totally watching the cornerbacks. Uh, you know, maybe outside of some one-on-ones, but you go down the roster and you get you know an undrafted free agent against an undrafted free agent. You kind of you know look down, you scribble some notes about what you saw previously. Um, I didn't notice Dallas Flowers until training camp, and then I was like, ooh, this guy can run. This guy's got some talent in him. He makes the roster. Uh, you know, winds up setting an NFL rookie record for yards per kickoff return. And uh, he, he's a really good player who I think is some upside at quarterback. So I just sometimes you get those undrafted guys, and it's hard to tell how they're doing in OTAs because they're going up against other undrafted guys, guys who may not may or may not make the team. And then when training camp rolls around, you start to really notice those guys.
1: JJ, is there a set checklist or a set just internal checklist in your mind as you're evaluating the status of Shaq Leonard and of Jonathan Taylor more so Leonard because it feels like this year compared to last year there is more of a sense of patience both from him and the Colts to make sure he doesn't come back too soon is is there a certain checklist that you're monitoring for okay this is nice progress and we're getting things along as we get into training camp and as we get into the preseason
2: yeah, I mean, I think the obvious answer is it would be awesome to see him out there on the practice field before OTAs and minicamp wrap up. But I am not – my level of worry with Shaq Leonard is not going to increase if we do not see him on the field during OTAs or minicamp. And that, that's just because, again, you're talking about taking a cautious approach here. That's what Shaq Leonard needs. That's what he admitted he needs after last season when he said, you know, I rushed back too quickly. I tried to get on the field because I, yeah, I wanted to compete with my teammates, and I, it was really hard for him to not play last year. Um, <laughs> but for him, I really do think training camp is going to be one we're going to really start to know, okay, what's his status? Is he going to be ready for week one? How is he going to look when he does get on the field again? Um, that's when we're really going to know on that. With Jonathan Taylor, I, I don't know. I, I said this on the the official Colts podcast that we did this week with Matt Taylor and Lara Overton, I was like, guys being in and out of OTAs, to me, that is something that has really never been predictive of week one participation. Like Jonathan Taylor not participating, okay. Does JT really need to participate in OTAs right now? Right, Probably not. So if there's any risk of further injury or a guy not being 100% for training camp by getting him out on the field for OTAs, you hold him out. And if that risk is 1%, you hold him out. So I just, I don't read too much into who is and who isn't participating during OTAs.
0: J.J. Stankovic's with us. How about this with uh, Anthony Richardson? We were just talking about the chances he starts in week one. Jimmy thinks he will. Eddie Garrison on the show also thinks he will. I would guess no. Where are you on the potential of a rich behind center in week one?
2: Uh, I probably am on the fence. Like, you see, you see some of the, just the natural ability, just seeing it out there. The way the ball explodes out of his hand, some of the subtle pocket movement stuff that he did at Florida that we're now seeing him do out on the practice fields here. Like, there, there, are some, there are some transferable skills that I think could lead him to be a, a week one starter in the NFL. But how he picks things up in the offense, uh, how he responds to his mistakes – those are going to be really big factors in determining how quickly he gets on the field. And again, I just I think it's too early to tell right now. I know that's not a satisfying answer on June first, but it's June first. Mm-hmm. You know, I think by August first, even we might start to get a trend line toward it, and that'll be a couple practices into training camp. Like, what's what's the trend line on this? Uh, and then by you know, I think. Uh, that week two preseason game against the bears i think that's going to be pretty instructive to how the colts are going to use anthony richardson um and if he is going to start week one or not i think by then the colts will have an idea and we can probably discern what that idea will be if they don't just outright tell us
1: JJ Stankiewicz at Colts.com here with us on the Fan Midday Show. JJ, which decision is going to be more difficult for the Colts front office and coaching staff, figuring out who the presumptive starters will be in three wide receiver sets, or figuring out which of the seven tight ends win this contest of who's going to make the team?
2: I think probably the tight ends, just because that wide receiver one comes down to Josh Downs and Isaiah McKenzie in the slot. Um, and those two guys are are different in terms of their skill sets. Like, Josh Towns doesn't run the football on, you know, jet sweeps or whatever. Isaiah McKenzie has averaged eight carries a a year during his career. The tight end thing, that is going to be fascinating. Because, like, I think the one guy who I have to keep reminding myself the team really likes is Drew Ogletree, who we haven't seen on the field since last training camp. Uh, The Colts thought this guy was going to be a star last year. And. He, he was showing it when the pads got on. He was the guy who was like, oh, like kind of going back to your earlier question of like a dude who did some things in OTAs and then the pads got on and you're like, oh, man, like this guy's good. Uh, that was Drew Ogletree last year. How he factors in that room with Mo Alley Cox, Kylan Granson, Jelani Woods, Will Mallory, Pharaoh Brown. You've got guys who have some skins on the wall who have been higher draft picks uh, for the Colts. It's going to be a really fascinating competition because of those guys, you probably can't keep all of them. You know, <laughs> it's going to be, you don't see a tight end room go six deep very often in the NFL. So, that competition to me, that one for roster spots is going to be the most competitive for starting spots. And I think it's cornerback of, of figuring out how these young corners shake out next to Kenny Moore, the second at that position.
0: JJ, it's great to catch up with you, man. Always good. And uh, don't stop believing, I guess. I don't know. Is that how we end it? We could end it the other uh, way.
1: JJ, I don't want to miss a thing from your coverage. There we go.
0: <laughs> well, love, Loving
2: an Elevator by Journey is a great song. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: That's, right. That's absolutely right, man. We'll catch you soon, JJ. Have a good one, man. All right, there, there he guys. is. Yep, there he is. JJ Stankovitz, writer at Colts.com. Well played by him. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. I'm Brian No, Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. Now let's talk some hoops, shall we? Tony East is with us. Covers the Pacers for Forbes Sports, Locked On Pacers, and Sports Illustrated. Uh, are you all things NBA Finals right now, Tony? You into this thing? The finals, the draft—it's all happening at the same
3: time. It's June. It's the uh, maybe the most fun month of the NBA calendar. I could—I could be convinced it's May.
0: You think we're going to get some drama here at all in the NBA Finals? Man,
3: I don't know. I keep hearing all these these people talking about how you know the Heat can play better. They created all these good shots and didn't make them. But I have to. The Nuggets shot better or worse from three than the Heat. Like, the Nuggets have a lot of room for improvement, too. Jokic wasn't even, like, that dominant. I don't know. I feel like this could be a a quick series.
1: I need to derail this conversation for just a second. Tony, you and I have never played together, but among your many posts that you make, whether it's with the Fever, whether it's with the Pacers, whether it's the NBA at large, every now and again, we'll get a highlight from the popular video game Rocket League from your mix on Twitter. Um, For those that don't know, and I'm assuming Brian's in the camp of does not know, there's a ranking system from unranked all the way to supersonic legend. And the second rank before that is a rank called Grand Champion. I'm just a mere diamond here. I didn't realize that was the type of circles you were running in from the Rocket League standpoint, Tony. That's insane. What is happening? Are we really talking about this? I'm yeah, we be- are. <laughs> no, we absolutely are. Because Eddie <laughs> mentioned that, and I was so baffled by it, where I was like, oh, look, Tony, a fellow sports guy plays video games. Hey, we're among the same – no, we're not. We're not in the same circles. You're in an entirely different stratosphere. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably play a little too much. I had that, that little time between WNBA training camp and the Pacers season to – to hit the sticks a little
1: bit you know <laughs> I to take it. <laughs> okay all right back to the finals that I, I apologize for derailing it but I, I needed to to have that resolved for just a second because Brian and I were discussing this earlier Tony East joins us covers the Pacers and the NBA at large for Forbes and for Sports Illustrated as well as the WNBA Brian was mentioning that that there's a pathway for Miami to make this interesting but we both still think it's gonna end up being Denver in likely five six games do you see a similar standpoint where, yeah, they could make this interesting and make some noise if, I don't know, Jimmy Butler finds himself again?
3: <laughs> yeah, that was the weirdest thing, right? That Jimmy Butler was not not the Jimmy we've seen in the playoffs. It's weird because, obviously, he was amazing against the Bucs, a big reason that upset happened, but... You know, Caleb Martin was just as good against the Celtics. Like, nobody was dominant, dominant against the Knicks. Jimmy's been amazing, but a lot of the narrative about his postseason kind of probbed up by the first round. And that's not to dump on him. He's been incredible. The Heat are in the finals for a reason, but he's got to be better than 13, 7, and 7 if they want any chance of winning Because, you know, you look at the score, like, they lost by, what was it, 12, 11? Like, that seems close, but you guys watched it. It never felt like the game was even kind of that close in the second half. I mean, the Nuggets just ran away with this game. And, they shot terribly from, from three, despite that happening. Jokic was just a ho-hum, 27-point triple-double. It felt like he could play better. Like Bam was great for the Heat, of course. They'll need that to repeat, but they're going to need a lot more. because I think the Nuggets have just as much room to grow as the Heat, and I think that starts with Butler. But even Martin, who was amazing in the conference finals, only three points. That's not going to cut it. Zero for Max Strews. I mean, obviously those guys weren't making shots, but they need a lot, a lot more to keep up because the Nuggets made it look so easy last night.
0: He's Tony East joining us here on The Fan. What's your explanation for this? Because you go back to the previous series where Jimmy was largely good, sometimes excellent, against the Celtics. But I think it was game six. Stan Van Gundy pointed it out. He's like, he looks intimidated tonight. And then last night, as you were talking about, he scores 13 points, and his role players couldn't hit shots. Like, I don't know why he's deferring to guys that aren't getting it done. I know he l- likes to get his teammates involved, but when you're filing for the Himmy Buckets trademark and your teammates are struggling, what's your theory as to why he doesn't take over sometimes in those instances?
3: Yeah, it's funny that the, the him phrasing got that high up that it's being trademarked. I, it's a good question, right? It's not even like... The Celtics obviously were sending more attention his way, but it's not like it was like hard double teams or anything. And, you know, I think that seeing Martin do well last round and Vincent and Strews, like he figured out that he doesn't have to be dominant all the time or really forcing his own shot. That's not really the player he's ever been. And uh, he couldn't really do that against the Nuggets either. And it, it, it hurt that a lot of those guys that were so good earlier in the postseason, outside of Haywood Ismith, who was <laughs> their second leading scorer, I think, I mean, we just weren't doing anything. It made it a lot harder for him. And the other thing is, the Nuggets are a really good team at playing without fouling. I think that that's kind of been a talked-about storyline. Only two free throws for the Heat in the whole game, which is crazy to look at. But, you know, if he's going to be a guy who's living at the line and gets zero free throw attempts, their whole team got zero free throw attempts, like a lot of his impact is going to have to be creating his own shot or creating shots for his team. And he led them in assists, sure, but he's got to be more forceful with his own scoring. I and mean, he's a minus 17. They got smoked in his minutes. They've got to figure mm-hmm. out how to get him going and how he can get the heat going because if he can't be at the line as much, if he's not going to be the, the Hemi Butler that he has self-described himself as, they're going to need more from guys who you can't reasonably expect more from. So he's just got to be better in, in many ways.
1: Tony, I'm right there with you in terms of Miami's offense, potentially not being able to find itself in such a way that will make this a high level competitive series. I do think, and this is what's been the main catalyst for the heat, the entirety of this run, their defense could be able to make things interesting on that front. But even where there were windows where it looked close, but you're right. It never really felt close yesterday. They still allowed Denver to shoot 50% from the field. They committed 15 personal fouls as a team what went wrong in your mind defensively for Miami? And is this just a matter of Denver's a buzzsaw and there's not a lot of options here for the heat, or can we expect some type of return to form or, or leveling up from Miami as the series progresses?
3: Yeah. 62% on twos, the Nuggets were in this first game and they didn't shoot very well from three. It's interesting looking at the heat, like Spolstra, a fantastic coach. Obviously he's been well acclaimed for what they've been doing in this postseason, but you know, it's harder to do what he's really good at, which is like mix and matching your schemes and matching your lineups to what you know, style you're going to play at a given time. When you can't go zone as much against Denver because Jokic, who can shoot threes and pass it to anybody and just break your entire defense, can do exactly that. Like one of their most successful stretches last night, early in that fourth quarter, I think they got it like ten or nine. And it was, was like a Haywood Highsmith at the top of a three-two zone guarding Jokic and. For a hot second it worked. they got it closer, like I just said, and then the Nuggets just immediately figured it out and scored. It's like you can't turn to those tricky little zones as much as you have in past series. It's going to be really hard for them to figure out exactly what they can do better defensively. Like Michael Porter, Jamal Murray combined four for 18 from three. That's not That might not happen again the whole series. So Denver, I, or excuse me, Miami, I don't know what the, the answer is going to be defensively. Like Jokic has just kind of busted everything that's come his way. This whole postseason, Anthony Davis couldn't do anything. The Suns couldn't do anything. So Spolster's the guy who's creative enough to figure it out. Maybe it's more multi-big lineups or something to to both give him two men on him and see signs. I don't know, because he just tore up everything they did. And the fact that they can't turn the zone as much when Jokic is in the game kind of hinders the creativity that they've had this whole postseason.
0: I was thinking about this, too, because this is the first time an eight seed has been in the finals since the 99 Pacers were there. And so Miami, they could well be on their way to getting smoked in the finals here. So what would make you feel worse if you're Boston You know, is it that the team that beat you goes on to win it all and you think, man, we could have won it all? Or is it getting beaten by a team who goes on to get smoked? And that's what happened to the Pacers. Like They lost to the eight-seeded Knicks, and the Knicks go on and they get boat raced by San Antonio. And I don't know, would it make you feel better or worse if the Knicks went on to win a championship and you could say, well, at least we won to a team that won it all? Or do you look and say, we missed our chance, we could have won it all? Which makes you feel worse in that instance?
3: Yeah, a lot of teams in the East are going to feel bad if he uh, get boat raced in this finals, right? Like the Bucs have to feel just like... I mean, they probably felt better at first seeing them go through the whole East. But man, if they get run in the finals like this, I mean, no one in the East is going to feel good. I was actually looking back at this 99 finals. The Knicks did not score 90 points in a single game that wow. finals, right? They they just got run over by the Spurs that year, and the Heat, I think, are better comparatively than that. Like, they had a really interesting year because two seasons ago, they made the conference finals. They lost to the Celtics in seven, obviously, but they were a really good shooting team and their defense was awesome, and their shooting went away this year, and then the postseason it returned, right? So they look more like the team they were two years ago that was at least close to this level. So, like, I, I, obviously they were eight seed for a reason. They only won 44 games, but they're a lot better team, I think, than their record kind of suggests. So, I don't think you can be, like, too embarrassed if you're any of these teams. I mean, the Celtics were just one game from the finals with, like, a rookie coach and a lot of changes this year. It's not, they were in the finals two years ago. I don't think they specifically should feel too bad about this, but, you know, the other teams that just got, I mean, the, the Knicks and Bucks looked hopeless against these guys, and now that he'd have no chance against the Nuggets, I mean, maybe it just speaks volumes about how good Denver is and how good Jokic truly is in this postseason that no matter what competition's in their way, they, they don't lose at home. They just take care of business. Their system doesn't look flashy or complicated, but it's just better than whoever they're playing. So maybe it's more on Denver, but Miami certainly an interesting eight seed right now.
1: Tony, for years during the height of the Warriors dynasty, before it was Kevin Durant, when the roster was built around them executing at an extremely high level in the draft I wanted to point and say, well, there's your blueprint if you're a small market team. All you need to do is be efficient in the front office in the draft. But the pushback to that would be, A, they got very, very lucky with Steph Curry. And B, it is Golden State. It's still a major market. People are going to want to come play there. With Denver, I feel like that's closer again, where if you're a team like the Pacers or a team that is on the outside looking in, that knows they need to do very well in the draft to contend for a title someday denver is a team you can look at is denver closer because of they're not quite the major market that a la or new york or a boston or golden state is or is it still well yeah they built things the right way in the draft but they got really lucky with Jokic. so that's not a proven science for being successful if you're a smaller market team
3: some of both like if you want to just compare it to the Pacers. You know, Halliburton at 12, 11, wherever he went, they didn't actually pick him. Of course, the Kings did. But, you know, like getting a stud that late is still really important. And getting a young player you can have for years because of restricted free agency is really important even if it's at 41 during a Taco Bell commercial like Jokic or <laughs> however you end up getting Halliburton early in his career. But, I mean, looking at Denver last night, only two of the eight guys they played, they signed to a contract. Right? And that Bruce Brown and Jeff Green who aren't even like, you know, any franchise. Even small market teams would have a chance at those guys. The other six, they either drafted or traded for using their own picks or using their successful veterans. So, yeah, if you're a team like the Pacers, of course, the, the best blueprint you could possibly have to win a championship is draft the best player on the planet with the first overall pick. Whatever, but in general, you nail your picks and you get guys who fit together via the draft. All of a sudden, you're... you're It's easier to sign guys who want to come play and fill a role there, like Bruce Brown, like Jeff Green. Uh, It's easier to, you know, just sign like a, or excuse me, draft a defensive specialist like Christian Brown and say, go play defense for eight minutes in the finals game. And he was great for a rookie in the finals. And all of a sudden, you know exactly what vets you need. Oh, look, KCP's available. Let's get him. Oh, look, Aaron Gordon's available. Like they just kind of did it perfectly to me where you get the star You figure out what you need around him, you get those pieces, and then you play. And they did it. And they've been a powerhouse for a while. And this year, they finally have all the right pieces with the Brown edition, with Murray healthy, to to kind of KCP edition, to put it all together. So I think this is the most copyable strategy for small market teams, even though obviously the the specifics of where they got Jokic are not repeatable. But just in general, getting a star in the draft is, is step one. And then figuring out everything else, the resources you have, they've done a great job of that.
0: I thought the Pacers would just draft Zach Eady, and he morphs into Jokic, you no? Know?
3: Uh, you know, I think Edie's, uh maybe not quite the NBA talent that Jokic is, but uh, he's got another couple years at Purdue to maybe grow his game a little bit, improve that, I suppose.
0: No, I hear you, man. How about this with... Uh... Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, talking about the looming John Morant suspension. First off, how long do you think it's going to be? And what do you make of the the commission saying, we're not going to announce it now out of respect to the finals teams, but we've uncovered a fair amount of additional information. And just like, what? what?" Well, how do you think he handled that?
3: Yeah, I think that that sort of signaled it's either going to be an extreme punishment or a light punishment, not just like some run-of-the-mill expected thing, if it's going to be delayed timing-wise on purpose. Like Mike Golick Jr. put it perfectly. He tweeted that this is like when your parents text you call me instead of just calling you, right? Like that's the perfect way of describing what's actually happening here. They're like, hey, John, ja, this is coming at some point. I think it has to be really serious for a million reasons. Liability, precedent, uh, safety of John ja Morant and the people around him. I mean, it has. To, I think it's going to be pretty Significant. I don't have like a great guess of actual games in my head. 25, 30, thirty—that almost seems too light. But it seems like it has to be pretty serious. The first one, whatever they—they they said it was eight, but it was only like two because he already had missed six. Like that—that that was not enough, obviously. So I think they have to be way more serious this time. The Grizzlies already suspended him immediately, right the day it happened. So they—they they obviously had enough information to make that call. So yeah, I think I think it's going to be pretty significant. One of the longest suspensions for an NBA player, like of my entire life, uh, and. You know, Silver's kind of had this rep of soft on players at first, but a repeat offender here, I think it's going to be pretty significant, especially given the way he kind of handled it yesterday.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you. What
1: do you envision the cost would be if the Pacers were intrigued by... Brandon Miller, Anthony Black, or Cam Whitmore, if they were wanting to try to move up a couple of spots. Well, what type of? Obviously, we're we're speculating at that point. But is it draft capital? Is it having to move some roster spots? Where do you envision a pathway if the Pacers decide? You know what? We like what's available in that three to five range.
3: Yeah, three. I think three specifically, given how the guys who really know the draft, right, your ESPNers, your. Watson and the guys who really know it—are talking about how NBA teams have this cutoff after Miller. Now that's going to be a more significant trade than you know four, five, sixes for Whitmore, one of the Thompsons, whoever they they may like. And uh, getting up to three it, it would be pretty expensive. Seven would obviously have to be in there. I'm assuming several more picks would have to be in there. Likely a pretty dang good player too. I mean, when there's tiers like this, the end of a tier is just really hard to trade up to, and. Throughout the history of the draft, like, moving up, I think, is way more expensive than than people realize, like, especially in a draft like this where there's really good talent at the top. Like, it's not just going to take a pick and two late picks and, like, a young player that, you know, is kind of cast aside. Like, it's going to take some serious stuff. It might take future picks as well to kind of do something like that. Like, the last time Seven specifically was involved in a serious trade, it was the Jimmy Butler trade <laughs> when he went from the Bulls to – um To Minnesota, he got traded with the 16th pick for seven, and Zach Levine and Chris Dunn, who was one year removed from being the fifth pick. So essentially, the seventh pick and two other really good lotto picks were involved there to go from seven to a good player. Like, I kind of think that's kind of what it would take to get to three. Five-ish is a little harder to say. That's not as big of a jump. That's kind of within the same Pacers tier. Maybe their own picks and one future pick gets it done. I don't know. But it's more significant, I think, than most people realize with how this draft is kind of structured.
0: Tony, great stuff, man. We'll let you get back to the sticks. We know you have a couple of levels to complete over there, you know?
3: I don't even know how to respond to that, but I'll just say, thanks, guys. Much appreciated.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, man. We'll catch you later. There he is. Tony East covers the Pacers for Forbes Sports, Locked On Pacers, and Sports Illustrated.